We turn this morning to the third epistle of John. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully... Whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou wilt bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We ought therefore to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, But Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends salute thee, greet the friends By name. As far we read God's Word. We take verses 3 and 4 as our text. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved saints of Christ, the church has many men in it. Many individuals, many members, but now many male members. And so did the church of John's day. But he looks at one congregation and he isolates three members of that congregation and he holds them before the minds of the people. And he evaluates these three men in relation to truth. First of all, there was Gaius, who walked in truth, our text says, and according to verse 8, was a fellow helper to truth. That is, he assisted in the way he could the preaching of the gospel. Secondly, there was Diotrephes, who even though he knew truth in his head, hated and opposed it. 
And he showed that in very concrete ways. And third, there was Demetrius, of whom we read in verse 12, that he hath good report of the truth itself. The epistle, the third epistle of John, is about three men in the church in relation to truth. And the question that comes up in your mind and in mine is, with which of these three, or which two of these three, do you most identify? If you are to be evaluated in relation to your knowledge of truth, no, that's not the issue. Your love for truth, the degree to which truth changes your life. How would the evaluation go? Which of these three would you be most like? That's the question that the third epistle of John drives home to us. One of the men whom the apostle singles out is Gaius. Gaius is the recipient of the epistle. He writes to Gaius. We know very little about this man. We do know that John loved him dearly. Four times in the short epistle, he calls him beloved or well-beloved. We know also that in some respect, Gaius' own spiritual understanding was due to the work of the Holy Spirit through John, so that John calls him my children, or one of my children, verse 4. But that's about all we know about Gaius. By contrast, we know almost nothing also about Diotrephes. The epistle says he loveth to have the preeminence, and he tries to control how things go in the church so that he doesn't receive the brethren. There are some brothers and sisters in Christ he'll have nothing to do with. And he forbids them that would. He tells some in the church that they also must have nothing to do with them. And he casts them out of the church. He either tries to excommunicate them or actually does excommunicate those who are doing right. That's all we know about Diotrephes. But you get a picture of a congregation in which one man, an evil man, was preeminent, was predominant. It was things were going to go his way. And on the other hand, there was Gaius, a wise man, a knowledgeable man, a man in whom Jesus Christ lived, and a man who lived for Jesus Christ, who saw that things weren't going the way they ought. And John writes to him, as it were, to say, We can't change things right now. A change is needed in the church, no doubt about it, but it won't happen overnight. But do not be discouraged, Gaius. Keep walking in truth. That's your calling. That's what God sees you doing. And that's what you must continue to do, even if all around you it seems Pointless. And that's the word of God that comes to us this morning. Walk in truth. That's the mark of the child of God. The mark of one who loves Jesus Christ. The mark of one 
who says, though I can't control everything going on in the world and society and even in the church, I can serve my Savior faithfully. So I call your attention to this under the theme, Gaius walking in truth. Notice first, Gaius' godly walk. Second, the brethren's testimony about that walk. And third, John's great joy. The concept truth is so fundamental to our text and the entire epistle that we must have a clear and right understanding of it. The question then with which we begin is, what is truth? And there are four things I'll say in answer, and not exhausting the answer to the question, but four things because they bear directly on our text. In the first place, truth is something objective. It's something real. It's something that God determined and gave. It is His revelation to us. And driving that point home, I want to then say two things. Truth is not. In the first place, truth is not my or your opinion of a matter. That's not the kind of truth in which Gaius was walking. But even in the second place, truth is not merely a fact that is true. Truth is a body of knowledge and of uh, revelation from God that does not change and that is revealed in Scripture. And according to that, Gaius walked. And so ought you and me. When we take Gaius as our example to walk in truth, we're not saying then that I have my opinion about how things ought to be, but rather that God's Word directs me in my life, and I take that Word to heart. First of all that, truth is God's revelation, objective and unchanging. Secondly, To give a little content to truth, we're going to say that truth regards the existence of the triune sovereign God and His saving work of sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh for our salvation. And I'm not saying that now just to try to summarize all of the Scriptures. I'm getting at what in the three epistles of John truth refers to. If there is a doctrine that ties the three epistles together, it is this doctrine that God sent Jesus Christ into the flesh. And that's a doctrine you and I have believed and do believe. It's not one that we challenge. And even in society around us, the greater challenge today is not to the humanity of Jesus Christ, But the greater challenge today, the denial regards the divinity of Jesus Christ. But in the day of John and the people to whom he write, it was the humanity of Jesus Christ that was under attack. And so, for instance, in the first epistle of John, the very first chapter, he emphasizes, we saw this Christ, we heard Him, we touched Him. 
You can't tell us that He didn't really come in the flesh. We know He was in the flesh. And then also, 2 John verse 7, many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So, so there are many truths, many components to the revelation of God, but this one is foundational. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh. And do you not look at that yourself, beloved, and say that is truth at its very heart. Because it is me in the flesh, descended from Adam and Eve in the flesh, who has sinned in the flesh and in the soul, and who needs salvation from sin in the body and in the soul. I needed Jesus Christ Himself truly God, to come and take on Himself my human nature. And only then can I be saved. The central truth that Jesus is God come in the flesh explains why He must end His life, not just by dying, but by dying on the cross. Only a true human nature dies on the cross, not a ghost, not some apparition, but Jesus Christ dying on the cross, because in that way He would atone for sin, would satisfy the wrath of God for sin, would earn for you and for me the favor of God again and life everlasting. This idea that Christ has come in the flesh is truth. It's the very kernel heart. Of all that God has revealed in Scripture. In the third place, this truth is antithetical. That is, it opposes everything that opposes it. You can't have this truth and something else that contradicts this truth and say they're both truth. That's how we want it today. And that's the fruit of saying truth is your opinion. Well, that's true for you. This is true for me. But the two contradict each other. They therefore cannot be truth. With a capital T. But this truth is antithetical. It opposes the lie. And again, this is getting at what John is doing in the three epistles that he wrote. There were two lies, especially that were being circulated and that he opposes. The first is that of the Jews who said, although this man Jesus did live in the flesh, no doubt about it, he's not the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And that's a lie. Truth opposes that lie. He is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. But there was also the lie of the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were a group of men who understood the, the Greek philosophies of the day. And they were enamored with the Greek philosophies of the day. They also understood Christianity. And they tried to bring the two together. And to claim that Christianity would tolerate a mixture of the pagan philosophies. And their idea of Jesus Christ was... He gives us something that we need for salvation. He's necessary, 
but he is not God in the flesh. But they said, you could be a Christian and teach that. And so in the text and in the epistles, John is driving home the point that truth cannot coexist with the lie. And in his first epistle, darkness cannot coexist with light as an example and an illustration. Truth, therefore, as you and I understand it and hear it and even speak it to others, confesses our Lord Jesus Christ and opposes all that denies Him or attacks Him as the Son of God in the flesh. Now those three things about truth serve as the foundation for this fourth point. And this is getting directly to our text. Truth is a sphere in which you and I live. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Interestingly, he didn't say walk according to truth. That, that truth forms their life. It does. It does do that. But that's not what he's saying here only. That they walk in truth. Now let me try to paint a picture to convey what John's doing here. Imagine a world in which there's only darkness. There's no light. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's no stars. And now imagine that world physically, but now think of it spiritually and realize that is the world. That is fallen humanity. Darkness. The darkness of the lie, the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of Satan trying to get his way, the darkness of Satan trying to bring the whole human race with him down into ruin. And so telling us there is no God. Don't serve some other God. There is no Jesus Christ. Don't serve some other Jesus Christ. The world is full of darkness. John's Gospel account, John's first epistle drives this home. And now... There can't be fellowship with God that way. There can't be the saving knowledge of God and Jesus Christ that way. There can't be a living according to the glory of God that way. So how would the child of God possibly live in darkness? And the answer is, he doesn't have to. You and I don't have to. God shines light from above on this dark world. And he puts that light, that light doesn't, For the sake of the illustration now. That light does not fill the world. I know that in fact it does. And as much as the gospel goes throughout the world. And, uh, and God's people throughout the world have the light of God's grace shining in them. For the sake of the illustration. That light doesn't fill the whole world. And so the child of God says... I see light over there. I'm going to get out of this darkness and I'm going to go to where there's light and there I'm going to live. And that's the, that's the picture that's painted when John speaks of walking in truth. This truth is a sphere. It's an area. It's an area in distinction from unbelief and ungodliness in which the child of God lives and walks. And your danger and my danger as we find ourselves brought by God's grace into that area of light, is that we say, 
But darkness looks attractive. What's going on in the dark? I want to go find out what's going on in the dark. No, the calling of the child of God is to remain in the light and to abide in the light and to walk and live in the light and to oppose the works of darkness. That's truth from the viewpoint of our text. And in that sphere of truth, Gaius was walking. It means that his actions and his words and his thoughts were godly. It means that he lived in as much as a sinful human can live as Christ lived. Because Christ above all walked in truth being truth himself. It means that Gaius let the revelation of God, the Old Testament and what was written in the New Testament be his guide. Let the revelation of God form his life, his thoughts, his words, his will, his attitudes. All is affected by truth. And it means that he loved truth in his heart. So that the brethren come and testify not just that he walks in truth, but that the truth is in him. It's formed him and renewed him internally. There's a very concrete way in which Gaius was walking in truth. And that's brought out in verses 5 through 8, which someday might be the text of another sermon here. So only very briefly for now. When traveling missionaries men who were going abroad preaching the gospel needed a place to stay, they knew Gaius would give them one. When they needed food, because the missionary doesn't ask the unbelievers to whom he preaches, could you feed me? He knew that Gaius would feed him. When having stayed at Gaius' house, they were about to leave and to go forward again somewhere else preaching the gospel, they knew that Gaius would give them what they needed to bring them forward on their journey. It's in these ways, concretely, that Gaius shows he's walking in truth. But I don't mean to suggest that all you have to do is put your money in the general fund and in that way support the ministry of the gospel in this congregation, and also the work of missions that we undertake as a denomination, and that's all there is to it. It's that simple. Rather, when one walks in truth from the heart, then all that one thinks and says and does is in the service of Jesus Christ, one's Lord. And in light of the revelation of God in Scripture, that's walking in truth. John has said in the opening verses, just before our text, that he wishes that Gaius may prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified that thou walkest in truth. In other words, now the point I'm making is, To walk in truth is an indication that one's soul prospers. A very interesting word in the Greek. Because it also has the idea of a journey. 
and of one making good progress on one's journey. If I wake up tomorrow morning and say I'm going to go to Chicago, I get in my car, and by the time I get to Sugatuck, I've got a flat tire that I have to pull off the road and take care of. And by Benton Harbor, I've got a, a belt that went bad and needs replacing. I'm not making good progress in my journey. But if I get on the road tomorrow morning and I can go 70, 75 miles an hour toward Chicago consistently, and there are no traffic backups, and I can be there in just over two hours, I've made good progress in my journey. And that's the idea here. Thy soul prospereth. Your soul is making good progress in its journey toward heaven because you are walking in truth. Now, child of God, because the darkness is so attractive to us, let's, let me drive this point home a minute. Because the world's attitudes, because the world's songs, because the world's entertainment, because the world's philosophies, because the world reveling in sin is also attractive to us, if you were to leave the sphere of light and go into that sphere of darkness and see what goes on there and say, oh, this is fun, this is enjoyable, What's being said is, your soul is not making progress on its journey toward heaven. Only walking in truth will it do that. Now, of course, that's to be understood and explained from the viewpoint of me, child of God, and my experience. God, God who governs all things, is going to use even the sins of His children to remind them Come back. Stay out of darkness. Repent of that sin and walk in truth again. But my soul and yours will not prosper, make progress in its journey if it does not walk in truth. So if Gaius is your example, beloved, renounce the things of the world. And open up the Word of God. Study it. Meditate. Take it to heart. And say, even if in the church some will not live as though they're walking in truth, I will. And then the Holy Spirit commends you as John is here commending Gaius. Before we leave the first point, there's a big question yet that needs to be answered. How does the sinner walk in truth? And the answer clearly is by the grace of God alone. But it starts way back in the counsel of God, with God knowing what darkness would come upon the world and determining that He would form an area, a sphere of truth. And with God determining which people He would put in that sphere, bringing out of darkness and putting into His marvelous light. And determining it would be you also and me also. And it includes the work of God in His counsel and then in all of time, preparing to send Jesus Christ, because apart from the atoning death of Christ, I have no right to be in that sphere of truth. 
apart from the resurrection life of Christ worked in me by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, I have no ability to walk in truth. But when God, by His grace, has carried out every aspect of our salvation, puts us in truth, then the child of God can walk in truth. Here's one point I want to drive home. If you say, I'm walking in truth. I was born and raised in a Christian home. I'm baptized. I went to catechism. I go to a Christian school. I know truth, so I'm walking in it. It doesn't take grace to know truth. The knowledge, intellectual knowledge of truth, that's something any man can possess. But what we do if we have that intellectual knowledge, but not the grace of God, is deny that truth, suppress that truth, and say, I don't care, I'm not going to live in that truth. It takes the grace of God to love it and to walk in it. And that's the grace that Gaius possessed. That grace given to you and to me by the Holy Spirit enables and empowers us to walk in truth. Now John heard the report of others. He heard the testimony of some brothers that Gaius was doing this. Apparently John and Gaius are not in the same city at the moment. They're separated. We don't know where each of them is. But some of these traveling missionaries, these brothers and these strangers, whom Gaius has hosted, come now to John and they tell John about how Gaius has treated them. And John tells Gaius what he's heard. It makes him rejoice greatly. But in the second point, what I'm going to do is drive home some practical points regarding communication between brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ. Because John is hearing Brother A, the brothers, speak about Brother B, Gaius. And that happens all the time, doesn't it? The church of Jesus Christ, we speak about other people. Often, other brothers and sisters. We might talk about them at our family tables, at our dinner tables. Sometimes we talk about their weaknesses and their sins. Sometimes, though, we say this about them. They are a precious brother and sister in Christ to me. Evidently, Christ died for them also. Evidently, they have a place in the church. And I am encouraged by seeing they walk in truth. And the practical point to drive home here is, that's the kind of talk that should come out of our lips 
when we speak about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Is there a place to speak of the weaknesses and sins of the brothers? There is, but it's a much, much smaller and narrower place than our sinful natures give it. It's the kind of place that about amounts to this. You notice that weakness of the brother, that sin of the brother too, so did I. We had better pray for him or her, and maybe we'd better go talk to him or her instead of talking to others about it. Build him or her up. But there's no limit to the talk we may have about other brothers and sisters in Christ when it comes to telling how glad we are that they are in the body of Christ and how we see evidence of the grace of God in them and how they are an encouragement to us. And that's what the brothers were telling John. When the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Here now is a manifestation of the grace of God in these brothers. They come and speak well of Gaius. Now, this application to communication takes another level. Because in the text, in the whole epistle, John is saying to Gaius, Hey, I heard something about you, and I'm going to tell you what it is. How quick are you and me when we hear dirt about a brother or sister to say, I'm going to run to that brother or sister. I'm going to tell them what I just heard. Got another level of communication going on here. There's times we ought not do that. If what we heard did not build them up as regards their honor, reputation, and good character, may run to them. Maybe I have to tell the brother or the sister who told us something not good. You have to go to him or her, and you have to address it. But John says to Gaius that the brothers told John something good. And John is quite ready to let Gaius know that. Again, with a view to encouraging him with a view to saying this is exactly what the child of God ought to be doing. This is precisely how, even though there is a diatrophies in the church who might overshadow all the, the good in the, that's going on, this is precisely how the child of God ought to be living. Walk in truth. Keep it up, Gaius. People are noticing. And so, the practical question is that why you talk about others? Is that how you talk about others? And when you go tell somebody what you just heard somebody else say about them, is your goal to build up. But that too is walking in truth. That too is pointing to the grace of God as it manifests itself in the life of a, of a brother or a sister. That, 
that too is with a view to the binding together in the, of the church and the communion of saints. Whereas the words that hurt, the words that divide, the words that make us wish we never open our mouths in the first place, they divide the body. They are works of darkness, not of light. Why does the Holy Spirit mention that the brethren heard and are telling John about Gaius? Well, first of all, to drive home, I believe that the power of that practical lesson that's set forth here, there's a commendation in the Holy Scripture when this communication happens in the right way for the right reason, but also leading us to our third point. Because it was why John says, I rejoiced greatly, and I have no greater joy. This is verses 3 and 4. I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You see that verse 3 is a very specific statement regarding Gaius in light of the immediate circumstance. And verse 4 is a broader principle that's true of the Apostle John Always. There's another relationship between these two verses. In verse 3, John says, I rejoiced greatly. And you could say, well, good. Among ten things that make you happy, this is one of them. And John says, no, don't think of it that this is one among ten. I have no greater joy. This is number one above all. Your greatest joy found in hearing others testify of the grace of God in your brothers and sisters, how that grace shows itself. Just as we looked a few moments at that word truth and needed to understand it in light of the text, so do we with regard to this word joy. What is this joy? What is true Christian joy? And the answer is, in a nutshell, true Christian joy is that activity of the child of God. It's a heart activity, a soul activity, in which we delight in what our Lord is doing in the saving of His church. There are all kinds of earthly joys but to delight in what the Lord is doing in the salvation of His church rises above earthly joys. And of this joy, the child of God says, I have no greater joy. Let me spell that out a moment. Number one, this joy regards what the Lord is doing, the salvation that the Lord is working. And that's why you and I can have joy. This joy, while at the same time we're weeping. We're weeping because a loved one died. We're weeping because a different loved one walks in sin. Real sorrows, and yet the Lord is working 
with a view to the salvation of his church. That's our joy. The joy regards not just what the Lord has done for me. So often that's what makes us happy. What happened to me today? What promotion I got? What raise I got? What great thing I did? This joy regards what the Lord is doing for others. That too is part of the communion of saints. That we understand the place others have in the body of Christ and we rejoice in what graces and blessings they are experiencing. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. And in the third place, this joy does also regard the grace of God in the salvation of His church and the lives of others, and then recognizing that He even used me, weak, human, sinful instrument. To that end, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children. They aren't, of course, just John's physical children, his biological children. These are his spiritual children. He means that also the gospel he brought them was blessed of God in their hearing with a view to their walking in truth. What is, from the viewpoint of the text, the greatest joy? It is the joy of knowing that the gospel is preached throughout the world. And that is the gospel is preached throughout the world. Here also some hear and some listen and some are built up and some bear the fruit of godliness. I have no greater joy than that, says the apostle. you say that's your greatest joy, beloved? Not just in theory, but is it really? Or, as we're tempted to do, is there something that has replaced that joy in your life as the greatest? It might be because a, pa- a, a parent a parent, says my children aren't walking in truth. And it could be from the viewpoint of a pastor and elders and deacons too that they look at one or some in the congregation they say they aren't walking in truth. I can't have this greatest joy right now. We actually can still. And we can because there are others who are walking in truth. But with regard to this child or with regard to these people in the church I can't have that joy. And then... Sometimes, edging out of the sphere of light over to that of darkness, we do something we shouldn't. We say, if I can't have this greatest joy, I'm going to find a substitute joy. And it's at that point that maybe a parent would say, yeah, son, you're not living the way you ought, but I can't change you and I don't want to lose my relationship with you. So I'll find my greatest joy just in that you're my child. It's the blood tie. It's the family tie that I will make my greatest joy. And what happened then is that earthly joy, which is only temporary, can't be deep, 
can't fulfill our deepest desire and longings has replaced what the text calls the greatest joy. We're prone, we're prone to do that. We have to guard against doing that. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children and brothers and sisters in Christ walk in truth. Now to the children comes a word. This is why mom and dad teach you the way they do. They do have a goal for you, for your soul, for your mind. And that goal is that you serve the Lord Jesus Christ with your whole being. And that's why they teach you. And if someday their joy is full because you are walking in truth, they are praising God for what He's done in and through you. But take to heart their instruction, their admonition, their rebukes. Don't walk in darkness, children and young people. Why is this the greatest joy though? And the answer fundamentally is this. Because when we walk in truth, we have fellowship with light and truth himself. One only true God and Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what makes the parent and the pastor so happy. My child has fellowship with his Savior. Now if John could say this about Gaius, specifically in verse 3, and about his children generally and as a principle in verse 4, But also if John was saying this by the inspiration of the Spirit, then this is what Jehovah God says to us and about us this morning. You are my children. I have formed you for my praise. Adopted you on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ And regenerated and renewed you so that you are my children, not just by adoption, but also you have my life in you, says Jehovah God to us. And that's his word to us today. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Yes, it grieves even God when we walk in darkness. You want proof of that? Ephesians 4 verse 30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 4 is all about, especially the last half of the chapter, is all about walking in light, living as the child of God ought, an antithetical godly life. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Do not make the Holy Spirit, and therefore do not make God himself grieve, because you are not walking in truth. That grief of God, no, when it happens, isn't the kind of grief That says, oh dear, I tried so hard. I tried so hard, but I don't know what to do now. No, when God sees his children not walking in truth, he grieves and he chastens. He grieves and he says, but you're my child. You're not going to keep doing this. I will teach you 
to desire to love, walk in truth and to love walking in truth. And therefore, coming back to His grace, He restores us in the path of righteousness. He creates in us an understanding that in the sphere of darkness can be no joy, but only in truth. And He works in us a desire to be pleasing to Him. Pleasing to Him ultimately, of course, only because Christ died for us, but pleasing to Him also in how we live to the praise of the glory of His name. May the doctrines of sovereign grace that you've heard today, may they remind you that you are His children for Christ's sake, be the incentive for you and for me to say that I too will walk in truth. If the brothers are going to talk about me, let this be what they see. Let this be what they say. That man, that woman, walks in truth. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, give us grace to do as thou hast called us to do. And as thou hast empowered Gaius to do. Give us grace to walk in truth to the praise and the honor and the glory of thy name. Give us grace then to speak of our brothers and sisters when we see them walking in truth in a way that builds up the church and encourages them. And where and when there is evil in the church, give us who walk in truth to understand that only in thy time will evil be removed, but walking in truth must be a constant activity on our part. We pray for Jesus Christ, for Jesus' sake. Amen.